Ah, children, man. Okay. Okay, let's pray for the children. Lord, we um, thank you once again for the children you have blessed us with. We want to pray for them now. Lord, that in this church they would receive grace and love and instruction that will help them to each to, be, to grow up to be men and women of God. And so we send them to their own activities now with our blessings, with our love, with our prayers, Lord. Go with them and watch over them and help them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's pray again. Let's pray now for ourselves and for Pastor Joanne as she brings the word to us. Lord, thank you for your word, which is spirit and which is life. And I pray, Lord, that this morning, as your word is delivered by Joanne, indeed, we would sense, we would know, as spirit calls out to spirit deep, calls out to deep, Lord, you would deposit a word in our lives that will bring encouragement and bring nourishment to our soul and instruction uh, for us too as your witness. So we pray for Joanne, God, that you will empower her, anoint her for the task which is ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. You know, when I first um, <clears throat> heard about this series, I thought it was a makan sandwich, like you eat the sandwich. And so I, I was quite intrigued. Uh, and then I realized, as, uh, as Raj and Kapo have explained in previous weeks, that in the Gospel of Mark, uh, he likes to use this technique where he sandwiches a story in between another story. And then it got me really excited in this like nerdy and geeky way because I'm a literature teacher. And so um, I thought, oh wow, Mark is playing with literary structure in order to create meaning. I love this. And, and, so, and, and so I was very excited. And so um, let's, let's read the passage. It's from Mark chapter 11. Mark 11, uh, verses 12 onwards. Mark 11, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law sorry, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. You know, I, I, I love this passage because we often think of Jesus as meek and tender and, and humble and loving when he looks at the crowd with compassion in his eyes and he's feeding and, and, and teaching and serving the multitudes. He's carrying the babies and, 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 you know, he has the gentle touch of the healer. And we see all these pictures of him as, as the cute Christmas baby or, or as the Messiah on the cross. You know, he's, he humbled himself to death on a cross. And, and if you look at all these pictures, you know, you can imagine the accompanying soundtrack. It would be like nice, soft music with strings and, and, and you know, a very kind of soothing and, and, and loving picture. And, and, and all that is true and it's good. But, you know, don't think that this gentle Savior, this gentle Savior King was without passion for His Father's glory. You know, Jesus' meekness was really power under control, not a lack of power. And, and Jesus was a man of passion. 
You know, he, he gave straight and strong answers to, to the religious leaders. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Lazarus. He was, he was full of passion. And, and I love this passion of Jesus because I know that it, it was this passion that drove him to the cross. It was this passion that, 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 that characterized his love for us. I mean, the cross is called the passion of Christ. And in this, in this passage, we see him full of righteous anger and passion over what was going on in his father's house. This was the day that Jesus got angry. And so let's look at this Markan sandwich. And I'm sure you can spot the sandwich, right? The first, Jesus curses the fig tree, and then Jesus clears the temple, and then it's back to the fig tree. Um, the fig tree dies. So I was telling myself, okay, I, I must not turn this into a literature lecture. But, you know, in literature, um, we don't just identify, right? You know, the students will always write, this is a metaphor. And I will write, so what? <laughs> like, what is the effect of that, right? And, and so, yes, this is a Markan sandwich. But, um, but what, why? Why does the writer do that? Why does, why does Mark make it a sandwich? You know, so obviously there is a connection between the bread and the meat, Right? And when you eat a sandwich, you're supposed to eat it all together. Right? You, I mean, unless you're funny, you don't, you don't take out the meat and, and eat it separately. And so, if you look at the fig tree story separately, it is a bit difficult to, to make sense of it. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, it actually appears as a standalone story. So, Jesus curses the fig, it dies, and then Jesus uses that to teach the disciples about faith and prayer which is kind of weird, right? I mean, if you want to teach about faith and prayer, wouldn't it be, oh, you know, we, we pray for this person to believe in Christ and then he believes, so yay, there's faith and prayer. But this is, we ask God to kill this tree and yes, he kills it. That's faith and prayer. And so it, it's, it's a bit strange, you know, isn't it kind of extreme, right? And it's strange because, you know, Jesus is usually the gentle one. Right? He came to seek and save. You know, John the Baptist was the one who came preaching repentance and judgment, but Jesus was, was the one who came preaching salvation and good news. And so why was Jesus so angry here? And you know, this is, this is Jesus. He couldn't have been just throwing a tantrum or, oh, he was just in a bad mood that day. What is it that Jesus felt so strongly and angrily about? And so to make sense of this fig tree story, I think we have to first look at the other story. You know, in a sandwich, um, the key is in the meat, right? If you, if you want to know what type of sandwich it is, what is the meaning of the sandwich, you will look at the middle. So it's either a tuna sandwich, or ham sandwich, or egg sandwich. Um, and it's the middle part that influences the taste of the sandwich the most, right? It is the middle part that gives you the biggest clue about what the sandwich is about. Or in this case, about what, what the theological purpose of this story is about. And so we're going to start with the meat. Okay, we're going to start with the scene of Jesus clearing the temple. And to understand why Jesus was so angry, we need to examine what was going on and what was wrong with the temple. And so here are some things that, that was wrong with the temple. And firstly, the temple had become an exclusive club. You know, we read that Jesus entered the temple area and he began driving people out. And so this area would refer to the outer court that was for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. You know, in the temple, uh, the temple had different courts, and right in the middle was the most holy place, right, where only um, the high priest could go inside, and, and he only went inside once a year. And then there would be the inner courts for the priests, and then the next court would be for just the men, and then, and then after that, it would be the court for the women, and then finally, the outer court would be for the Gentiles. And so this, this scene was in the outer court where, where, where everybody could access, everybody could come in, but it was also the only area that the Gentiles could access. It was the only place where anyone in the world, including non-Jews, could come and pray. But how in the world would they be able to pray when there was animals and, and, and money changing and all these buying and selling going on? You know, there would have been money changers tables, there would have been um, uh, animal pens, and, and you know, anywhere where there are lots of animals, it would be noisy, it would be smelly. Is that what a house of prayer should look like? And so the message that the Jewish leaders were sending was, well, we don't really care about these Gentiles, you know, we, we need the space 
for our activities, and, and there was really no regard for the non-Jews. Now, if you think about it, this should be the one place where, where the Jews should be doing evangelism and outreach and, and missions. But would the Gentiles come into this court, the only court that they could be in, and see the animals and the money changers and, and the buying and the selling and the mess and want to believe and follow this Jewish God? And when Jesus cleared the temple, he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he was quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 56, that says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And the Father's house of prayer is open to all people, all nations, even the foreigners. And it was an assurance that, in, in Isaiah, it was an assurance that even the godly non-Jews who follow God would be accepted in His kingdom and can worship in His temple. But clearly the religious leaders did not have this attitude. And they turned this outer court in, into a marketplace. And there was no regard for the non-Jews. So the temple had become an exclusive club. And the temple had also become a route of convenience. Now, many people would have been going from town to the Mount of Olives to sacrifice the Passover. And walking through the temple was actually a convenient shortcut. And, and you know, people were not just cutting through the temple to save themselves, you know, walking a few more yards. They were also carrying all their, all their barang, you know, their, their bags and stuff, their merchandise for buying and selling. And, and the Amplified Bible translates verse 16 like this, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise or household wares through the temple grounds, using the temple area irreverently as a shortcut. And so these people who were, who were walking in the temple, they weren't there to worship, they, they were just there because it was a shortcut. So the temple became an exclusive club. The temple became a route of convenience. And the temple became a place of business instead of a place of prayer. Verse 15 says, there was buying and selling. People were changing money, you know, buying and selling currency. People were buying and selling doves and, and other animals. And, and they had turned it into a market. Now, why were there these market changes in the temple. We have to remember that at that time, there was only one temple, one Jewish temple. And so Jews from all over the world had to go there to, to worship. You know, there's no such thing as your local church. And, and people had to pay temple tax, but they had to pay in a special kind of money. The coins had to be changed into currency that was acceptable to the temple authorities. Because the religious leaders said, well, you know, we can't be accepting all these currency from these different, um, uh, different areas. And so there were money changers. And the charge for the exchange was, was something exorbitant, like half a day's wage. But what do you do? You have no choice. You have to pay the tax. And so these money changers were making money off the people. And why were there people selling animals in the temple? Because people would offer these animals as sacrifices. And so the Jews would come who came from great distances. They couldn't bring all their goats and, and animals along. And so they had to buy the sacrificial, sacrificial animals near the temple or inside the temple. But you know, another reason they had to buy the animals inside the temple was because there were priests who would inspect the animals before you offer them to God. And, and you know, there mustn't be a slightest flaw because you are offering them to God. And that's why to make sure that their sacrifice was acceptable and, and temple-approved, you know, they had to buy these perfect temple-approved doves from inside the temple. And of course, they were much more expensive. It was a monopoly. It's like when you go to the cinema, you know, you can only bring food and drinks from the cinema inside, right? And so you end up paying like $15 for a small Coke and some popcorn and it's like more than your movie ticket because you can only buy from inside. And I think Mark specifically mentioned doves as well, doves being sold, because doves was what the poor people sacrificed. You know, in, 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 Le in Leviticus, it says that if a person cannot afford a lamb for sacrifice, then he can bring two doves or two pigeons. 
And you know, God specifically made exceptions for the poor people, right? If you can't afford the lamb, bring the dove. And, and, and yet, here were the religious leaders exploiting the people. And some historians estimate that the high priest and, and, and his men um, were actually charging as much as 10 times normal worth of a sacrifice. And so they were taking advantage of the people, and, and this was especially terrible for the poor people. So there was all this business going on in the temple that was, in fact, not just business, but, but really exploitation on, on a wide scale. The religious leaders had found a way to make huge profits off the worshippers who came to the temple. And that's why Jesus was so angry. People were treating it like a shortcut. The leaders had no regard for Gentiles, for the non-Jews, as if the temple was some exclusive club. And the leaders were exploiting people. And I think the reason why Jesus was so angry can be summed up in verse 17, where he says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so the last thing is that it had become a den of robbers. You know, a den of robbers um, refers to a cave where the robbers would hide um, and, and then spring out unsuspect, unsuspecting at, at travelers. And, and as, I, as I've mentioned, some Jews would travel long distances to come to Jerusalem to worship, and they would, they would have to make these long journeys. And, and very often, these long journeys were not very safe because there would be robbers along the way. And so when they get to Jerusalem, they get inside the temple and they think, okay, now we're safe. We're in the house of God. You know, we've made the journey to the house of God and, and now we're safe. But actually in the temple, there were more crooks waiting to rob them of their money, just that they were disguised as temple money changers or, or dove sellers. And these people were robbing the worshippers of their money. They were, they were not just doing that, they were robbing the temple of its sanctity. If we look at Jeremiah 7, where, where this phrase, den of robbers, den of robbers appears, you know, it, it is really um, um, a passage about religious hypocrisy. And, and when Jesus quotes from this passage, He's talking about people who come to, the past, come to the temple to worship and think that that is enough as a cover for lie, for lying and for sin. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? And just like in Jeremiah's time, the leaders were violating covenant laws outside of the temple and then coming inside the temple and, and worshipping and thinking they were safe. And so what Jesus was so angry about was that these leaders put on a cloak of religious uh, respectability to hide their sin, you know, their exploitation of people, their lack of reverence and true worship, to hide their greed. And the temple had become a place of praying, P-R-E-Y, praying and paying instead of praying, P-R-A-Y. And you know, the thing about hypocrisy is that it is often found in, in those who are the most knowledgeable about spiritual things, like the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. And you know, if we had interviewed any of the merchants um, that day, each one of them would have probably defended their right to be there. You know, they would have said something like, oh, we provide an essential ministry and, and service to these people. You know, the money-changing ministry. We, we make things convenient for them so that they wouldn't have to herd their sheep and their cattle all the way here. It's, it's the loving thing to do. We're, we're serving them. And it would have been easy to justify and rationalize all that buying and selling. Just as, for example, it can be easy to justify and rationalize you know, bending the rules, not strictly following the law when we use church funds to facilitate gospel projects. And what the merchants in the temple would not mention would be the huge profits that they were making. But Jesus saw through the veneer of, of all this uh, religious helpfulness and, and so-called service that all this buying and selling really flowed from a love of money rather than the love of God or His people. And this, greed, and this greed is worse because they made it appear as, as religion and service. Religion used as a front for greed. And so Jesus got angry 
because his father was not being worshipped. It was money that was being worshipped. And we know that throughout the Gospels, Jesus constantly points out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. For example, he would say in, in Matthew, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You know, the temple should have been the most holy place. It should have been the place where the Messiah was first recognized, where he would be most likely to be recognized. And the religious leaders should have been the first to recognize the Messiah, having spent so much time in the house of God and studying the scriptures, tying it to their foreheads and all. And yet they were completely blind to the living, breathing Messiah in front of them. It was their self-seeking hearts and this materialistic deadness to spiritual reality that, that destroyed the temple and made it a den of robbers and that would eventually go to destroy the real temple, Jesus you know, verse 18 says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were constantly looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. And why did they fear him? Because of his popularity. The whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. He was a threat to them. So having looked at all that was wrong with the temple, the, the natural question for us to ask ourselves today is whether we are guilty of any of these in church today. And, and I think it's not just something for church leaders to think about, but for each of us as a part of the church, both in PPH as well as in, in the larger church, the body of Christ, as Christians and as part of God's church, what is our attitude and our heart when we think about the church, when we do things in church? And if Jesus came here, what changes would he make? Would he get angry? You know, has the church become a place of business where where everything is just transactional and, and self-seeking, where everyone just thinks, well, what's in it for me? You know, is the church a den of robbers in any way? Have we materialized or commercialized the gospel in every way? And, and I know in PPH, obviously, we don't sell tons of merchandise or, you know, books with pastor's big face on it or, or CDs that church members are strongly encouraged to buy multiple copies of. Um, we just sell red t-shirts, $10. Um, but, you know, I think the point here is, is really not to, to judge others. Or, or It's really not about the books or the CDs or, or whatever is sold, but, but really to carefully consider what we do in church. Is there a self-seeking attitude? Is there hypocrisy? Is there self-righteousness? Do we attend church and, and serve and do we be a part of church and then be happy to just use that as a cover for sin in our life. And when we gather as a church, as a body of Christ, are we truly a house of prayer as we should be? Or is church perhaps just a convenience for us, just a shortcut, you know, just, just a Sunday morning routine, we're just, we're just passing through on the way to lunch. And are all nations and all people, are all of them welcome here? Or have we turned the church into an exclusive club, a, a, a holy huddle where everything is for ourselves and to serve our needs with little regard for visitors and non-Christians, the very people we are supposed to reach out to? You know, do we consider whether the church is, is welcoming, seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly, or do we not care as long as things are fine and good for us? You know, I think it's great that for, for three years running, we are bringing the church to Teban Gardens on Christmas Day. And, and yes, it means that, that we don't have an air-conditioned service in this building and, and perhaps it's a little out of our comfort zone for some of us. But it's a great opportunity to truly serve and reach the community as we are called to do as a church. So please sign up to help. And now that we've looked at the meat, let's go back to the fig tree story. The account of uh, Jesus clearing the temple is sandwiched in between um, this story of the fig tree. And there is, there is clearly a connection. Okay? Jesus comes to the fig tree and he finds there's no fruit because it's not the season for fruit, uh, for figs. And then he curses it. Why? What, what does this have to do with the clearing of the temple? Now, I want to suggest that the clue lies in the leaves and the roots of the fig tree. Now, the first thing we need to take note of is that in Scripture, the fig tree is very often a symbol of the nation of Israel. Okay? And in the prophecies of, of um, the prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, you know, Nahum, um, Hosea, 
uh, Israel is often compared to a fig tree. For example, in Hosea, you know, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on a fig tree. And Nahum, you know, when talking about Israel, all your fortresses are like fig trees. So the fig tree represents Israel. But why does Jesus curse this poor fig tree when it's not the season for figs? Now, here's the thing that I learned about fig trees. That even though it was not the season for figs, that when the leaves of the fig tree appear, that there is actually a very small crop of what is called first ripe figs. Early fruit, if you can look at that, early fruit, first ripe fruit, as Jeremiah and Nahum mentioned. And, and these small figs are, 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 are not big enough or good enough for anything, and so they are, they are not harvested. But Jesus was right in expecting at least some figs. And the other thing about fig trees is that fig trees don't produce figs until all their leaves are out. But you see, here was this tree that was already full of leaves and therefore should have some fruit. It was already full of leaves. And so this tree was deceptively flaunting its pretentious green leaves in the face of a hungry Christ, and yet there was no fruit. It was nothing but leaves. Jesus was hungry. The fig tree, with all its lush green leaves, looked promising, but actually there was no fruit. It only looked good. And it was what we would say, ho kwa bo ho jia. And and that's why he cursed it. That's why he cursed it because it had nothing but leaves. It was it was all just show. And so does this sound familiar when we now think about the temple story? Now if you look at the verse just before the start of our passage today, Mark 11, 11, before this account of the fig tree says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he looked around at everything, but since it was, late, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He looked all around the temple at everything, but since it was already late, but since suggests that he wanted to do something, but he waited since it was late. And I think what Jesus saw was that the temple was beautiful and massive and, and impressive, you know, a beautiful big building. And it was crowded. There were many people inside, which means there were many people gathered to worship God. Or was that the case? Because upon closer inspection, Jesus found no fruit inside the temple. Nothing to satisfy him. Because all he could find was people changing money, selling things, charging exorbitant interest, exploiting the poor, using it as a shortcut, no regard for the Gentiles. The temple was crowded with people, but no one actually praying and worshipping, which is what they were supposed to do. And so Jesus looked around at everything. He found no fruit, not even the small first ripe fruits, but nothing but show. And you see the connection between the two stories lie here. That the fig tree was deceptive, just like the temple and the priests and the teachers of the law. That the leafy fig tree with all its promise of fruit was as deceptive as the temple, which with all its bustling activity was really a den of robbers. That the temple looked impressive and magnificent on the outside. But inside the leaders, and, and inside the leaders performed elaborate ceremonies and, and rituals, and then they boasted of great knowledge and, and, and they appeared religious, but actually, inside, there was no fruit. And so the fig tree represented the nation of Israel, which was in a sad spiritual condition. They had the form of worship, but not the heart. And it was nothing but leaves, nothing but show. And it was this fruitlessness this spiritual barrenness that made Jesus so angry. And that was why he cursed the fruitless tree and then he cleared the fake temple. And then when we come back to the fig tree at the end and the disciples see that the fig tree was withered from its roots, it was withered from the roots, from the roots meaning it was completely and utterly dead, utterly withered. 
Now, if we look at the fig tree as a, uh, as a prophetic symbol of the temple in Jerusalem, then we will see the connection. That Jesus looks at the fruit at uh, the tree and he finds no fruit. And so he curses it. And Jesus looks at the temple and he finds no fruit. And so he clears it. And then if we think of the fig tree as a foreshadowing of what was happening and, and going to happen in the temple of Israel, then when the disciples find the tree completely destroyed and withered, from the roots, then we will understand that that too is prophetic. It is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen to the temple. Total destruction. Because the temple had lost its purpose. It was not serving its purpose as a house of prayer. And you know, these incidents, they happened in Passion Week. The week leading up to the crucifixion. And so in a few days' time after this, Jesus, God would literally rip the veil of the temple and the temple would, would no longer be the place where people met God because Jesus would now bring direct access to the Father. And authentic worship would no longer be attached to the temple, to, to a specific place, to Jerusalem. There will be no longer any need to travel long distances just to offer a lamb or a pigeon as a sacrifice because authentic worship will be through Jesus alone. And Jesus himself replaces the temple as the center of Israel's faith that salvation is found in Him and not in the temple. And so like the fig tree, the purpose of the temple is now withered from the roots, completely dead because Jesus is here. It's like when Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, a time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. And this is the kind of worshippers and, and the kind of worship that God is looking for. Not only for those who have a form of godliness, who are religious on the outside and corrupt in the inside. And what people did in the temple was really less important than the worship that would come from their hearts. And so that's the sandwich, but... What does it mean for us today? What should our response be? I think that there are two things that we can think about. And the first is this. Are we individually and corporately bearing fruit? You know, I'm sure uh, in, in all other churches as well as in our church that there are lots of activities and programs and, and other things going on. But you know, Jesus is not impressed by mere activity in the church. The Bible says that man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And I believe that God is not just concerned about whether we are doing things or, or, or serving in this and that ministry, but how and why we do things. Like the money changers and the dove sellers were, were very busy doing what they would have called ministry. But God was not pleased. Jesus was not pleased. He wasn't impressed with their service. He was angry because their motives and their hearts were not right. And there was no fruit. There was nothing but leaves. And so whether we are, you know, teaching in, in the Sunday school or, or whether we are serving in the worship team or whether we're an usher or a, a CGL or whether we participate in, you know, our CG Bible study and in capping, the question is not so much whether we are serving and participating, but why and how we do it. Whether we do it for the right reasons and with a good attitude. And is there fruit in our lives, as we participate in church events, as we serve in, in this and that ministry, does it make us love God more? Does it make us love people more? And I believe that this is something that we have to be very careful about today because we live in a day and age where we, are, uh, we, we easily have access to, to books and DVDs and, and podcasts, commentaries, conferences, etc. And, and, and many of these things can, can help us grow spiritually. And there's, of course, nothing wrong with all that. But, but, you know, do we read and listen and attend and then stop there? Or is there fruit that is produced? Are our lives changed and transformed? And do we personally encounter in a deeper and deeper way this God that all this is supposed to be about? Or do we, like the religious leaders, just take all these things as a substitute for true worship, a substitute for actually talking to and encountering God himself? Because if at the end of the day there is no worship, there is no fruit, then it would be nothing but leaves, just activity. And you know, as a church, especially 
in a place like Singapore, we often have impressive churches, um, you know, big, beautiful air-conditioned buildings. We have expensive lights and sound systems. We have lots of activities and, and programs. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with all that. But at the root of it all, is there fruit? Is there fruit? Or are we a church that waves green leaves to people with promises of God's salvation and, and, and love and grace, promises of offering the bread of life to those who are hungry. We wave our leaves and we beckon for people to come and drink from the fountain of life, but inside are really just people who are critical or, or, or quick to judge or who park inconsiderately or who are indifferent or who are self-righteous and fruitless. And if we don't bear fruit, then we are no different from the hypocritical religious leaders. And so we need to be constantly bearing fruit. We need to be growing in maturity and Christ-likeness. We need to be transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory and not remaining barren and fruitless. You know, when Jesus looks at the church, when He looks at our lives, He's looking for fruit. He's looking for something that results from all that activity, something that brings glory and something that is worship to God. Not outward signs of, of prosperity and activity and busyness, but no one actually worshipping, glorifying God and praying. And so are we, as a church, and as individuals, bearing fruit? And the second thing we can think about is, are we, as a church, are we a house of prayer? You know, prayer is central in this sandwich. Jesus was so angry because the temple had lost its true purpose as the house of God to be a house of prayer for all nations. And at the end of the fig tree story, Jesus' lesson to the disciples is about faith in prayer. Verse 24 says, Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received and it will be yours. And so the nation of Israel, the temple, was supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of belief and faith in God. But all that was missing. And so Jesus cursed the fruit tree, the fig tree, for fruitlessness, and the only remedy for spiritual barrenness and emptiness in our lives and in our church is a full restoration of prayer as never before. You know, we can say that, that God birthed the church in a prayer meeting in the upper room in Pentecost. If you look at the book of Acts, the early church, it was, it was all about prayer. Chapter 1. The disciples, after Jesus was taken up to heaven, they gathered and they joined together constantly in prayer. Chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Chapter 3, Peter and John went up to the temple at the time of prayer, and then Peter heals the crippled beggar. Chapter 4, the apostles were, were unjustly arrested, imprisoned, and threatened. And you know, the church, they didn't write a petition. They didn't try to just reach for some political leverage. Their response was to pray. And then after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. It was a powerful prayer meeting. In chapter 6, the apostles chose people to help out with the waiting of tables so they could, they, so they could focus, not just on teaching and, and preaching, but on prayer. In chapter 9, this is when Paul appears. God tells Ananias to look for a man called Saul, for he is praying. And it's almost like that's the sign that this guy who used to persecute Christians is now safe because he's a worshiper now. He's a believer. He is praying. Chapter 11, Peter, uh, Peter was in, in Joppa and he was praying. And then he saw the vision of you know, the, the, a large sheet with all the animals about the Gentiles. Chapter 12, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And then he was miraculously released from prison. He went back to Mary's house, and there were many people there gathered and praying. It was like a non-stop prayer meeting. Chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart Paul and Barnabas to do my work. And so the disciples fasted, and they prayed, and they placed their hands on them, and then they sent them off. And you know, the list could go on and on. The prayer was such a central part in the early church. It was the first thing, it was the key thing that they did, pray together. And prayer was the defining mark of this early church. There was a constant offering of prayers. All day, every day, they were just praying. And I believe that the church grew so quickly and so explosively because it was fulfilling its true purpose as a house of prayer. And so if the church was birthed in a prayer meeting, 
then shouldn't our prayer meetings be the most important or if not, you know, one of the most important events and programs in church? And so what has robbed the place of prayer in our church today? You know, all our, all our songs and, and events and programs and, and sermons are fine and good, but really nothing should override prayer as the definitive mark of God's dwelling. And it's not just about PPH. You know, the temple, God's dwelling place, is, is no longer confined to a singular building. The feature that is supposed to distinguish Christians, Christian churches, Christian gatherings all over the world is supposed to be the aroma of prayer. You know, the house of God cannot lose its purpose, its calling, and its identity as a house of prayer. Nothing should substitute the place of prayer in a church. The main activity of a church has to be prayer simply because the main point of a church is for people to encounter God, the one whom we are praying to. And prayer is all about our relationship with God and encountering Him. And so as we have so much access to, to books and videos and study guides and study Bibles, commentaries and, and podcasts and devotionals to help us in our spiritual journey, none of them would actually mean anything if we don't actually just talk to God and commune with Him and spend time with Him. And you know, as a parent, like it, it wouldn't make sense for me to spend a lot of time um, reading parenting books, buying things for my children, you know, signing them up for, for classes or researching on the best schools for them and, and doing lots of things for them if at the end of the day, I don't actually just spend time with them and talk to them. And so it doesn't make sense if we spend an Im immense amount of time doing things for God or, or related to God or we learn about God if at the end of the day we don't just talk to Him and go to Him in prayer. You know, prayer is, is it's not just uh, presenting requests to Him or going to Him when we have problems. Prayer is, is simply about communion with God. And you know, when we truly commune with God, then we cannot help but respond in worship to Him. And so when we come to worship in God's house, if we want to bring Him authentic worship in spirit and in truth, then we can't run away from prayer. You know, in Revelations 5, 8, it talks about the four living creatures um, um, who, who fall down before the Lamb. And each one of them is holding these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Our prayers are incense. They are part of our worship. And one of my favorite quotes about prayer comes from this book by Jim Simbala called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It says, Desire gives fervor to prayer. The soul cannot be listless when some great desire fixes and inflames it. And strong desires make strong prayers. And the neglect of prayer is the fearful token of dead spiritual desires. There can be no true praying without desire. And believe that that was, that was what Jesus was looking for. He couldn't find when he came to the temple. True desire for God, true worship, worship in spirit and in truth, a, a genuine seeking and, and crying out for God because the temple was meant to be a house of prayer. And so do we have that kind of, of attitude when we come to church every week? And do we come just to fulfill our attendance or, or, or just as a routine? Or do we come into the house of prayer, the place of communing with God, of fervently desiring and seeking Him and expecting an encounter with Him and therefore fervently praying, fervently worshipping, fervently calling upon the name of Jesus. You know, today we have a, a nice church building to worship in. We have a really good church library. We have access to books and conferences and, and all these resources. And, and you know, we genuinely have we generally have enough funds. We, we rarely have situations where we are very, very hard-pressed for money. And so what is it that we lack? Why are we not like the church in Acts? And you know, this is not judgmental or critical kind of questioning. I know I ask this of, of our youth ministry all the time. What is it that we need and what is it that we lack? And I believe it's, it's prayer. It's prayer because prayer summons the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what makes the difference in everything that we do. And so church, let's return to our calling 
to be a house of prayer and offer up not just you know, obligatory prayer, but really passionate and fervent and desperate prayer and worship in spirit and in truth. I believe that the real force of a church and the real power of a Christian and a church comes from our prayer life. And that's how we can be truly fruitful. Because the devil is not terribly frightened um, by our human credentials or our human efforts. But the real power comes when we lift up our hearts to God in prayer, when we ask the Holy Spirit to take over and do what only He can do. And that's why one of the devil's strategies is, is to convince us that we're doing fine. We're fine doing our own thing with our own talents and our skills and our plans. But when we pray, prayer acknowledges that apart from Him, we can do nothing. And this is what Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches of a man, remains in me, and I in him. He will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And so let's ask ourselves today, are we a house of prayer? Will this be a house of prayer? And will we be a people of prayer? You know, as we enter our Christmas season, we will have various outreach events. And I believe that the harvest will be reaped by prayer. It will be reaped through prayer. Because whatever we want to do and see as a church, it can only be accomplished if we become a fervent house of prayer. So church, let's together be praying for all these Christmas outreaches and really praying and crying out for a move of God, for the Holy Spirit to touch hearts and change lives. Because, you know, we can do, we can do Bible study on prayer. We can go for prayer seminars and workshops and we can read devotionals on prayer. We can listen to people preach and teach about prayer. But it's not prayer until we actually just pray. And, and I know sometimes prayer can be challenging for those of us who like to live in the fast lane. You know, those of us who, um, like me, have that uh, overachieving, overachieving, overproductive drive. You know, let's go, let's get things done. And, 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 and yet when we pray, it's, it's, it's very often we don't see tangible and visible results immediately. And, and I used to be not really like into this solitude and prayer and waiting on God and, and, and all that. You know, I would think like, okay, yeah, yeah, we can pray, but you know, come on, let, let's also get things done. Let's do this, you know, use the time and do this thing. There's so much to do for God. You know, but I've come to realize, especially in doing ministry and praying for people, in, in, praying, in, in praying and in wanting to do God's work, that if I don't call upon the Lord for help and if I don't ask for His miracles and His power, that all this human activity really cannot achieve much. It would be just nothing but leaves. No fruit will come out. And in my own journey of, of becoming more prayerful, of, of learning to pray more, I have experienced that, that, yes, it's difficult when we start, but you know, the more we pray, then the more God reveals things for us to pray, the more He puts burdens in our hearts to pray, and, and the more He puts the desire and hunger in us to pray, and therefore the more we will want to and will be driven to pray. You know, there, there are so many ways to pray um, on a corporate level in church. We have, we have our Wednesday prayer meeting. Um, we have pre-service prayer at 845. Um, you can join a prayer group. You can sign up to be an intercessor for Christmas. You know, you can be praying in your CG. You can um, start a prayer group in your office or in your school. And the bottom line is, whatever we want to do as a church, whatever we want to see God do, what, you know, the more we want to grow, the more we want to see God move, then the more we need to pray. And of course, on an individual level, we all can and should be spending time every day just in prayer. And, and, and I feel that it's actually not very complicated. I always tell the youth that the secret to prayer is just to pray. You know, then let's, let's, just, let's just pray. Come to God and pray and make sure that the house of God is a house of prayer. I'm going to invite the keyboardist up and and, and, and I know we've spent some time praying just now for the Christmas outreach, and, and, and I think that's great. And, and I really think that, you know, in a service, that the sermon is not like the highlight or like the main thing. You know, that really we are called to be a house of prayer. We are called to make prayer central in every gathering, in all that we do. And so I'm going to ask that let, let's all rise and let's just end this service with a time of prayer. Let's just individually come before God. We'll stand together as a church. We'll individually come before God in prayer and just commune with Him and, and, and ask Him for, 
for that real fruitfulness in our lives, both individually as well as as a church, that we will truly bear fruit, that we will not just be nothing but leaves. And let's ask Him for a deeper desire and a hunger for Him. You know, a heart that genuinely seeks Him and, and cries out for Him, a heart that worships in spirit and in truth. Because strong desires make strong prayers. So let's ask the Lord to stir a desire in our hearts, a hunger for Him, so that prayer will come out naturally. Your prayer will flow from that desire for Him, that desire for His glory. Let's ask God to make us a house of prayer, a people of prayer. Where we say we can't do anything without Him, and so we have to pray. We have to constantly call upon the name of Jesus. Father, we stand before you as a church and God, we acknowledge that without you, we can do nothing. That God, apart from you, we have no good thing. That God, we are completely and utterly relying on you, both in our individual lives and as a church and all that we do. That God, as we go into the season of Christmas, as we have all these outreaches, as we desire to, to, to reach out to people and, and evangelize, that God, we cannot do it without your spirit. So God, would you come and, and stir desire and hunger in each of our hearts. That God, we will constantly be seeking more of you. That we will constantly be hungry and longing for your glory in our lives and in the church. Would you make us, God, a house of prayer. Would you make us a people of prayer. We we'll constantly call upon your name. We we'll cry out for more of you. We we'll worship you spirit and in truth so we thank you God we praise you and we love you in Jesus name we pray amen the service is over we can proceed downstairs for baptism now